Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Ian West, the NATO Communications and Information Agency Cybersecurity Chief. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time today. You're very welcome. It's uh, great to join you. There's a, a new, if you will, search for NATO for the Allies that kind of launched in a new way, you guys are adding some new capabilities. It's a community of cyber technical defenders. I think this is fascinating. Can you just kind of start with at the beginning? What did you guys launch back in early February, and why is it important? Maybe I can put a little bit of context. We, I work for NATO, as, you, as you've said, and, and our job is to protect the NATO networks, uh, not, of course, the national networks of our member nations. So we have a, a NATO CERT called the NATO Computer Incident Response Capability that was uh, set up back in 2004. And because we're all facing the same sort of cyber threats, uh, both in NATO and in nations, we're all using roughly the same sort of technology. We've been working together for quite some time. But one thing that we've really been missing is the ability to be able to work together at light speed, if you like. Cyber attacks happen obviously very quickly, uh, and the days of telephone calls and emails really don't cut it in the, uh, in, with the cyber threats that we're facing now. So my agency, uh, under its uh, digital endeavor uh, vision, came up with an idea of extending a, an existing network out to each of the 29 allies eventually. Uh, we started with five just as, as a as test, and we've given them each a secure laptop, which enables us to speak together, to see each other using uh, uh, web technology, uh, secure voice, secure video, collaborative spaces, so that we can truly now work together in real time. It's a real game changer for us. One of the things that comes to mind as I hear this is secure technology, secure communications obviously is not new. So we use, and, I, and, and, and as the reporters, let's say Signal or WhatsApp or, or other mm-hmm. kind of encrypted technologies. Now, I, I won't think that those are strong enough for a NATO and, and the type of information you're sharing, but it, it right. surprised me that, that this capability was not in place beforehand. So give me a sense of, of the why now versus not a year ago, five years ago, or you know, back in 2004. We have the connectivity to each of the nation's capitals, but what we haven't had is the right system in the right office. Uh, it sounds really simple. It sounds like a no-brainer, but if a system is not in the same street, maybe not even in the same town, you cannot truly collaborate at the speed that you need to. Uh, and so it's only recently that, that um, we've put together this, this initiative to deploy these, uh, this network, basically, this cyber collaboration network, to the very places where the technical guys, the cyber defenders, the guys in the cyber trenches uh, who are actually defending the networks, can get immediate access and to let each other know what's going on, what they're seeing. So the difference here is not the people at your level, but really the people who work with you every day who are saying, hey, this vulnerability is starting to spread quickly, we better tell everyone and close it down, uh, versus, hey, Ian West, uh, the, the CISO for NATO, is talking to the CISO over in Belgium, who's talking to the CISO over in France, and it, it, it's uh, unfortunately, for lack of a better word, a little bit of game of telephone. 
That's it, it, you know, that's exactly it. This capability is being delivered to the very guys who are watching for those vulnerabilities, who are watching for those vulnerabilities being exploited, um, who are seeing new things. And as I said before, you know, these, these new things often, they hit us all in the same way. So having these guys who are literally on our cyber front lines able to quickly, immediately, in real time, speak with the partners across NATO uh, is something really special. Give me a sense of how you guys came up with this approach. Was it just an aha moment, or did someone bring it up? Because one of the things you're starting with, obviously, is the uh, business network. Now, is that the first network you're going to look across, or is the business network just a more of a common term that everyone is connected to already? No, the business network for us is actually what we're providing to uh, each of the uh, allied cyber defenders. Our job is in, within NATO is to protect our operational networks and our business networks. We call it the enterprise, uh, the various security classifications. What this network that we're deploying to each of the allies' capitals does is basically puts almost office automation, if you like, but much more modern than just emails and, as I said before, telephone, right at the fingertips of those guys who are seeing these things happening on their networks uh, every minute of every day. And from a technology perspective, without getting into too many of the bits or bytes, but also not into the sensitivity area, are, are these a sets of tools? Are these new types of, of encryption? Can, can you give me a sense of, of a little deeper understanding of what this new enterprise uh, network will, will look like? And I can tell you some of it, obviously. Uh, we use a lot of uh, commercial off-the-shelf tools, uh, the same as uh, many organizations. We have one or two things in the, inside the network that are, if you like, homegrown and shared uh, with allies. And, the, of course, the encryption tunnels that we use are also fairly strong. Well, you hope so, right? If they're not fairly strong, we all have a bigger problem. Well, you know, I've been, I've been in this business since 2004, and one thing I know is that there's no 100% security. For, but, uh, you know, it's all about risk. And, um, you know, when you look at the, the risk, the residual risk that we have here in doing it this way, uh, compared with not being able to communicate, it, this is certainly the way to go. And this is really only an interim solution until, you know, maybe in a few years' time, we can get something more permanent, but uh, it really does bridge a gap. We've had um, um, agreements, for example, with our, with our allies on information sharing, threat intelligence, and sharing best, uh, best practices and so forth for a number of years now. But um, there's been this, this gap in the ability to be able to actually interoperate, collaborate in, in real time, and this cyber collaboration network really fills that gap. Actually, that was a great segue because I was going to ask, how was it done previously? If, if you wanted to contact your counterpart in, in Washington, D.C. for the federal government, or if you wanted to contact your counterpart in another country, in France, the Netherlands, how would you contact them in real time? Was it a phone call? Was it an uh, email? Was it a text? Well, in, in what I call Collaboration 1.0, uh, that's exactly what we did. We had telephone numbers. So we, we used the telephone. We used emails and so forth, which, of course, are quick. But it's very difficult, you know, uh, to, to – if you want to get the message out to all 29 nations, that's 29 different phone calls, of course. Here, with the business tools that we're using, we can do a one-to-many call and uh, reach 29 allied uh, cyber defenders uh, simultaneously. That's the key here because, that's, as you mentioned earlier, the lightning quick piece. If people can understand 
in almost real time or in real time that, hey, this port is a problem or, hey, we're seeing this type of attack, they can shut it down much more quickly and then the, and also share it beyond just the NATO folks. But, you know, if the defense, if you talk to your counterpart in, in the Defense Department and they give it to the Homeland Security Department who then gives it to NSA and, and you see that chain yep. snowball effect. That, that's exactly it. You know, we are a a huge coalition of the willing, not just the uh, us and our and the people we we deal with immediately, like our as a, uh, our uh, allied cyber defenders in the government networks, uh, but as you've said, the, those networks extend throughout society, and and this is really all about collective cyber defense. Give me a sense of the challenges to create this uh, network. You have the tools and the capabilities and the willingness, and that's probably three-quarters of the battle. But how do you get that last mile? This has been a real success story for us. We've actually designed the system, built the system, and delivered the, the first five systems to, to the first five allies who are undergoing the three-month test in around eight weeks. Uh, and that's pretty good. And we uh, went live last week, and we have a collaborative workspace all of the video, the voice, the uh, collaborative spaces are all working really good. Uh, so that's what we've done. So that the idea is that over the next three months, we'll work together with the five test allies. We'll refine what we've done. And then round about June or July, we'll, we'll roll out the same, uh, well, improved, hopefully, uh, capabilities to the other allies. So that by the middle of the year, we'll have reached all 29 allies. We we'll take a break. My guest is Ian West, the NATO Communications and Information Agency Cybersecurity Chief. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. For the latest on my security clearance. Federal News Network. Federal News Network. Helping feds meet their mission. Today's digital transformation report, Realize What's Possible, provided by VMware. Here's Bill Rowan, Vice President, VMware for Government. Recent government policy encourages agencies to focus on cloud computing in smart ways. VMware can help realize this vision, building upon your existing investments. We support deploying cloud-native applications, modernizing IT infrastructure, and automating government IT for government. At VMware, we can help agencies embrace interoperability from both public and private clouds to create an agile, hybrid cloud environment for your on-premise data center to and from public cloud providers. VMware's cross-cloud architecture is available today and integrates with the leading cloud providers such as Amazon Web Services, IBM, and Microsoft's Azure. Let us partner with you and achieve your cloud computing goals. Let's talk. VMware Solutions, modernizing government IT and streamlining operations while reducing costs and strengthening security. Realize what's possible. Visit VMware.com slash go slash federal. A federal career can last 30 years or more, and so can your federal retirement. Tune in to For Your Benefit every Monday morning to get the information you need to plan your retirement, maximize your federal benefits, and increase your financial savvy. For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA, offers valuable information on topics of interest to the federal employee. Join us each Monday at 10.05 a.m. on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For additional information, visit NITPINC.com. 
Defending agency information assets in today's threat environment is a daunting task. How to proceed? Age-old advice applies. Focus on the fundamentals. And keeping an eye on cybersecurity fundamentals is mission one for Fortinet Federal. Frequently recognized for security effectiveness by independent authorities, Fortinet provides agencies with seamless, high-speed, integrated, and intelligently automated security solutions. Trust Fortinet Federal to advance the science of cybersecurity in your agency. Learn more at FortinetFederal.com. The IRS finally caught up with Louie. I hadn't paid my taxes in eight years. He was in big trouble. We're going to take your house, garnish your pay. Louie found out about Optima Tax Relief, the leading tax resolution firm, and rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau. I don't owe the IRS anymore. It was because of Optima Tax. Call Optima now for a free consultation. Give Optima Tax a call. They can help you. Call 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. Optima Tax Relief. For details, visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. There are nearly 2 billion websites in the world. But there's only one that matters to the federal IT community. Welcome to AskTheCIO.com, the longest-running program on federal IT, featuring Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. AskTheCIO.com, exclusive CIO and IT decision-maker interviews, breaking news, on-demand and updated daily. Sign up at AskTheCIO.com and become an insider with full access to federal IT news, special events, and actionable intel. AskTheCIO.com. What's best for you and your federal career? And what comes next? Your turn with Mike Causey. Search your turn. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Ian West, the NATO Communications and Information Agency Cybersecurity Chief. The one thing that kind of stands out to me is we'll, we'll call it false positives, data paralysis. How are you guys guarding against that where there's just too much data being shared and I can't tell what's, what's good and what's bad? We need to have information, actionable information. Obviously, you've got to mine the data to be able to do that. There are an awful lot of false positives uh, out there in cyberspace, but a combination of the tools and the technology that we use uh, in, in every allied cyber defense office and, and indeed our own. So a combination of those tools along with the really high skill levels of our operators, our defenders, we're able to try and find that needle in the haystack. And once we do then, uh, we can share that much more quickly. And that actually brings down another good path is the training piece. The people who work in, in these positions, the cyber defenders, are, are uber smart. They, they know their stuff. But you're giving them two things. Instead of tools that maybe are new, but also asking them to share in real time, what was the training or what is the training going to be to get people kind of, I'll call it a little bit of a culture change or just creating new habits? Yeah, it is, it is creating new habits. Uh, there is a tendency, particularly for the guys in the trenches, to kind of look straight ahead. But I can also say that, that we've been, uh, every year NATO has a, uh, a major cyber uh, exercise uh, called Cyber Coalition. Uh, we're also participating in the world's largest live fire cyber exercise, Exercise Lock Shields. And so we've actually been training in these exercises, not just to defend the networks, but also importantly to share the information that you have with your partners so that they can benefit from that and, and make their networks more secure. So uh, there is a little bit of a, a cultural difference insofar as, well, now we can do that in real time. 
not just sending out emails and, and picking up the phones. So that's really the only cultural difference. Our operators have actually been playing together, if you like, defending together for some years now. And is that why, as you guys were putting together and coming up with this concept, it was such an easy decision? Beyond the fact that the, 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 the comments you made earlier that cyber is moving at the speed of light, that the phone, email, text are no longer fast enough, but the fact is that you've had that this partnership has existed for so long, not just NATO, but within the cyber world as well. And you've seen that as you got together for these exercises, that there's a relationship that has been growing and can all, and, and this is one way to potentially make it much stronger. That is exactly it. Um, and you, you've, you've used the exact, the exact right words there. You know, we have been training together, fighting together, uh, against these cyber uh, cyber threats in in the real world and in exercises for so long now, what the cyber collaboration network does is just gives us the tool to to give us a little bit more of an advantage to work together more effectively more and, and more quickly. Are you seeing a difference already? Can you give me any sort of even anecdotal evidence that hey we saw a problem and it was shared just like that? Like we, it, this made a difference on the first day or the second day. Well, I can tell you that I can't go into specifics, but I can tell you that uh, our first call uh, was really great when you can actually see the faces of the people who are doing exactly the same things within their area of responsibilities. Uh, and the discussions were all around what they were seeing today. What's the latest in this cyber espionage campaign? What's the latest in, uh, with this type of virus and so forth? So we, it, we are seeing immediate results, uh, and this is just going to get better. And, and when you talk about results and, and, and things kind of improving, do you guys, have you guys talked about or set some metrics to measure the success of this approach? Because I'm, I'm sure there's a cost, there's a time issue, and as you said, over this three-month pilot, you you're eventually want to expand this to you know, 24 more allies, how do you say this is working or this is making a difference? You know, if, it's very difficult to, um, to put metrics in our world. Uh, yes, we all do them, but uh, you know what they say, lies, lies, and damn statistics. You know, if we can uh, work together during, for example, a, uh, the next WannaCry, uh, the next NotPetya, or, you know, something like that, and just prove that we have made uh, either NATO security better because of some information that, that was passed over this network or vice versa, we've, able, we've been able to help an ally, then that will be proof of this investment. Then the investment itself is actually very minor in dollar terms. Right. It's, it's always you have to, for cybersecurity, the big challenge is to prove the negative. Well, because we did this, something didn't happen. Well, good luck on that because... There's no guarantee it would have happened. And I think that's always been the, the biggest piece of, of uh, the biggest challenge for cybersecurity professionals like yourself. Going forward, you mentioned uh, midsummer to expand this to 29 allies in total. Uh -huh. In a year from now, and three years from now, where do you see the continued evolution of this uh, network, this capability? At the moment, we're, this is very much designed for the, for the defenders. Uh, for the guys in the cyber trenches, uh, as I've described. Uh, but we also have a lot of other organizations involved in, in cyber defense uh, at the political levels, at the operational levels, in, in the military. And uh, it, you know, ultimately, we need to bring the whole community to, together a little bit more closely into an environment where they can truly collaborate.
So I imagine the, the expansion of this is not just limited to those 29 allies in the cyber world, but maybe the expansion in those 29 allies much broader over time as, as you kind of refine and figure out what, well, someone in the military needs to see this type of data and someone in the political world needs to see that type of data. You can kind of, that, that's part of that evolution, just to put a finer point on it. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Ian, this has been a fascinating conversation, so let me thank you for your time. My guest has been Ian West, the NATO Communications and Information Agency Cybersecurity Chief. Ian, uh, thank you for calling in from uh, Ireland, and, and thank you for your time. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is Mark Amtower. My show, Amtower Off Center, brings you the best and brightest minds in government sales, marketing, and business development who share insights to help you grow your business. How to make content marketing work for you, advice for channel players on how to win more government business, and the real scoop on selling from GWAX and IDIQs. Tune in Mondays at noon on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, or subscribe to Amtower Off Center on iTunes or Podcast One. Please join Luke McCormack on Tuesday, July 2nd at noon for his monthly series, The Federal Executive Forum, proudly celebrating 14 years. This month's program will focus on emergency communications and public safety. The panel includes government leaders from the Department of Homeland Security, FEMA, and the Department of Transportation. Don't miss The Federal Executive Forum on Tuesday, July 2nd at noon, right here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, sponsored by Verizon and Hughes Network Systems. Disruption waits for no one. So what exactly are you waiting for? At KPMG, we help government agencies embrace new technologies and implement agile operations to meet the needs of a rapidly changing world. We help organizations advance in areas like digital transformation, cognitive analytics, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and much more. It's time to turn today's challenges into tomorrow's opportunities. Become future ready with KPMG. Visit futureadygovernment.com. Here's Barry LeFew, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Software Solutions with SAP NS2. And what we're doing at SAP NS2 is bringing those world-class software solutions to the national security market. And the national security market has some very unique needs and requirements that are really around supporting the mission, helping keep our nation safe, helping agencies protect their cyber infrastructure, and really understanding what our adversaries are doing. Visit SAPNS2.com. Today's Human Capital Management Report sponsored by Graduate School USA. The Interior Department is rolling out a new telework policy next month. All employees previously eligible for telework will be required to report to their duty stations two full days each biweekly pay period. The new policy will also prohibit interior supervisors from regularly using telework. Managers will reevaluate telework agreements every year. Interior tells Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco it's time to modernize its telework policy. I'm Lauren Larson. Federal employees, September 30th is right around the corner. Have you had the training you need to meet your objectives? Graduate School USA stands ready to assist with the solutions that federal government agencies rely on to help them build a more mission-ready workforce. Get the training that can help you meet your objectives and prepare you for the workforce challenges you face every day before the fiscal year ends. Visit graduateschool.edu slash yearend not affiliated with the federal government. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO. I'm Jason Miller. My guest today for this segment of the show is Jamil Jaffer, the Vice President for Strategy and Partnerships at Ironet Cybersecurity, as well as founder and executive director for the National Security Institute 
at the George Mason University Hanson Scalia Law School. Jamil, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jason. So we're going to continue to talk a little bit about NATO and the fact that NATO is doing a lot of work both within their, their countries of their allies, but also more broadly, they're, they're really kind of stretching their cybersecurity legs a little bit. And one of the areas that we that you that the audience heard from in the front half of the show was really a, the, a new cybersecurity network a, approach to voice video sharing of data. So let's continue to discuss around the, the idea of sharing. But in this case, it's threat intelligence. I think there's a lot of efforts being made internally for the federal government and domestically with, with industry, but then there's also some internationally. So just give me a sense. How do you see the current state of that, that threat sharing, that threat intelligence sharing? The U.S. government and U.S. industry has been talking for a long time about the need to share more information about what's going on in, in cyberspace, what the threats look like on the industry side, what the threats look like and the intelligence collection looks like on the government side, and how industry and government can work together to better defend our national infrastructure. Part of the reason for that is that the vast majority of the IP space, when it comes to the United States at least, and the same is true largely overseas, is that it's run and operated by the private sector. And yet we see a lot of the threats coming up against our nation, particularly the most capable ones, uh, being nation states. China stealing intellectual property, Russia engaging in electoral manipulation, uh, Iran and North Korea conducting more active, aggressive actions. So we see a lot of nation states going up against uh, both our government and our industry, and yet the government today doesn't do a lot to defend the nation when it comes to private industry because it's not their networks. They don't see what's happening, uh, and they may or may not have the authorities and responsibility and, frankly, uh, you know, funding to do that kind of national defense. So the question becomes, who's going to do that defense? How are they going to share that information to do that defense? And how can it really be effective as against committed nation state attackers? One of the things we've seen over the last, I would say, four or five years, maybe even 10 years, is this ramp up against uh, private sector companies, but also ramp up against the government. And what the government has tried to do, the DHS specifically, but also some in the intelligence community, is create that two-way information sharing. Do you get a sense that it's still too much one way and it's not enough two-way? Yeah, I think that's still a huge problem, obviously, the the fact that we don't have really a lot of two-way sharing. The government's talked for a long time about giving classified information to the to industry, sharing even unclassified information by, by downgrading classified information. But part of the challenge has been a lot of it has been signatures, like known bad things. Hey, we know about this bad thing. Go defend against it, right? Of course, in the modern world, signatures or just known bad things are not enough. You've got to be able to watch the evolving threat and defend against that. And so you've got to be able to look at behavioral analytics, and you've got to do it at machine speed and scale. Today, a lot of our information sharing that takes place takes place in, in chat rooms or on bulletin boards, and then you cut and paste the, the, uh, the indicator compromise into your system. You know, uh, somebody once said to me at one of the most, uh, most capable information sharing and analysis centers that, you know, the, the SOC analyst's best tool is Notepad because you can cut and paste the IOC and drop it into your, your tool. Well, of course, in the modern world, that's crazy, and so you've got to be able to share at speed and scale. And so what you want to do is you want to identify these anomalies, share them across a broad ecosystem of industry, potentially with the government, and then leverage the learnings from government intelligence collection to get ahead of threats, not react to what you know to be bad, but what you think might be bad or the way the the attacker might be going uh, in the future. And that's really the key to modern cyber defense, and and we're just not there yet today, to be totally frank with you. Do you get a sense of why we're not there? And and I want to go over to the international side in a second, but what is stopping us? Is it the old, oh, it's culture change? Or is there something else? I'd like to say a lot of it's culture, but it's not, to be honest with you. Part of it is 
Um, you know, fundamentally, industry continues to distrust the government with its information, um, and the government distrusts industry with classified information. And we've got to get past that, right? Uh, we passed CISA now in 2015. That got rid of a lot of the notional legal barriers to sharing. It provided some measure of liability protection, and it provided some measure of regulatory protection. Maybe that wasn't enough. You know, I've advocated in other writings that we need to do more there and make it more like the original draft of that legislation, CISPA, back in 2011. But, you know, those are things at the margins, right? What really needs to happen fundamentally is that industry needs to be willing to share situational awareness with the government. Now, I actually think industry is there today. I think that you've seen the energy industry, the financial services industry, and increasingly the healthcare industry realizing these threats are just too big for us to deal with on our own. We need the government to take action on their own side and use their authorities to do stuff to, to, to defend us against the people that are coming after us. Do that defend forward thing that you've been talking about. Do that persistent engagement thing. Let us enable that by telling you what we're seeing. And so I think you've seen industry being more and more willing to share with the government. Now the government needs to do its part in, A, take action, and, B, take, use its intelligence collection capabilities to identify threat actors going up against industry and then share that data back with industry. Because if you're going to make them defend themselves, you've got to empower them. You can't just say, well, national cyber defense is really important. We're not going to do it. Industry's got to be the first line, but then we're not going to help industry really do that well, even though we know about things that might be coming up against you. That's crazy, but that is where we are today. I think your examples around energy, financial, and, and healthcare, we've seen a lot of examples uh, there recently, are good ones because we've seen for years the financial industry has really been ahead of the, the game. And the use of not just fusion centers, but the ISACs, the information security analyst centers, have uh, really played a bigger role. Let's move internationally now, because one of the things NATO is trying to do, as we heard earlier in the program, is open up those lines of communication and, and open up those lines of sharing. Are things any better internationally, or is that even further behind where we are domestically? Well, in a lot of ways, it's a very similar situation, right? Because what you have internationally is you've got these allies who, who have sort of the same equities, right? They're not sure they want to share the most sensitive data, right? Signals, intelligence, collected data about what the enemy is doing uh, with their colleagues. But, of course, the same analysis that applies to individual industries or industries of government applies across allied governments, right? So we can help protect Europe better against the Russian threat if we provide them information that we're seeing about the Russian threat. And they can, frankly, be in some ways canaries in the coal mine for us if they tell us what they're seeing about the Russians doing up against them. Because the thing about the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans is they're not going up against the U.S. companies and U.S. government first. They're doing it in their AORs, their areas of responsibility, right? They're doing it in Asia, Right? So you see the Chinese go up against first against the Taiwanese. You see them going up against the, the Japanese. You see them going against, against the Singapore government. And then they use those same techniques if they're successful against the U.S. Same thing with Iran and the Middle East and same thing with Russia and Eastern Europe. And so if we're going to get better at our defense, we need to learn from our colleagues in those areas of threat. And frankly, they can get better defense if we provide them more advanced capabilities and some of our learning. So these cross-border things like what NATO is doing are really critical helping the, the allied nations defend themselves against these very real threat actors who are getting more and more aggressive, right? Not Petra by the Russians was a big deal. $300 million individual companies that weren't even the targets of the attack, right? $10 million worldwide. That's a lot of resources going to waste uh, around an attack that could have been defended against if we had just done a better job of, of engaging in the right kind of patching and the right kind of defensive maneuvers and learning from the threat before it hit us. 
NATO has been one of those organizations that we've always said from a kinetic war, right, will protect each other. Do you think that there needs to be or has there been any sort of, hey, from a cyber attack, a cyber war, we'll defend each other or work together? Have you seen any sort of sign that they've moved from this kinetic side to the uh, cyber side? Well, I think so. You know, I mean, I think that NATO has long ago established a cyber cooperative defense center of excellence. They've been doing a lot of work in the policy space there. You've seen the Talon Manual, which is a product that sort of tries to set some framework for uh, the appropriate use of offensive capabilities in potential wartime uh, and, and non-wartime scenarios. Um, but you've also seen more recently, um, and I think probably your, your earlier guests talked about this, really a desire to do more things concretely, real information sharing, real offensive and defensive tool capability sharing, um, sort of building out that allied network so that it's more like it is on the kinetic side. We're not quite at the point yet, I don't think, in cybersecurity and cyber defense or cyber offense even, where we sort of say an attack on one is attack against uh, everybody. But if the things do get kinetic-like, right, and they have kinetic-like effects, things blowing up, systems going down, uh, you know, significant data deletion or data manipulation, I do think you could see the NATO alliance coming together and saying we're going to defend collectively, right? And really, we've got to be doing that today, right? The, the word of the day has got to be collective defense, right? Too often in cybersecurity we talk about, oh, you know, we got to have this endpoint tool or that tool or this tool. Those tools are all great, you know, and, and at IronNet we make a network threat analytics tool, but the real game changer for IronNet and what we do and what other companies and in, in industry and government have got to do really is adopt that NATO-like collective defense model and defend one another against these threats. Otherwise, you know, we're all going to stand alone, and, and, and no one company could credibly expected to defend themselves against a nation-state adversary. It's just not realistic. And that's why you've seen the sectors like financial and health and telecommunications and others really come to grips with the fact that they have to be more inclusive. They have to, I'll use your word, be more collective. Where do you see that needing to go next? Again, we talked about the two-way communication, yeah. but what do those sectors and the government have to, how do they march together even further into that collective defense? Part of it is this, this information has got to be shared in real time and, and constantly, right? You've got to be willing to tell all your other partners and, and eventually over time, you know, your government, here's what I'm seeing today. Not all this is bad, but here's what my threat picture looks like. What does your threat picture look like, and what can we learn from one another? We all, you almost need a, you know, a radar system for cyberspace so we can all see what's happening to one another, and then we can decide how to defend against it. That's or an air traffic control picture in some ways uh, is another way to think about this, right? Once you have that, then the question becomes, okay, well, what do I do about it, right? And I think the what do you do about it means that we have to recognize that at some point these attacks are going to get to the point where they're so bad that really we do need the government to conduct some measure of defensive activities on its own to defend the nation, right? Whether it's an attack on the power grid or an attack on the financial system or whatever it is, right? I don't worry less about sort of a cyber 9-11 and worry more about, you know, what happens when the day we are in a conflict where cyber is a part of it, Estonia, other nations in Europe have already had to live with that. What happens when that's us? If we don't have a plan in place where the government can interoperate with, with private sector systems, the American people are going to look around and say, what were you people doing, right, in the lead up to this? You knew the threat was coming. You had seen it in Europe. You, you knew the threat was real, and you guys just didn't get your stuff together in, in time to figure out how to work together, and now you're figuring it out in the, in the heat of a battle? That's crazy. And so, you know, we need to, we need to start doing more, more exercises together. But that means interoperable systems. It means rules of the road, rules of engagement, authorities, and, frankly, resources on both sides of the side, both the government and the private sector side, to really implement that defense and, and 
you know, and, and taking the fight to the enemy when the day that when the day when that day comes. It's interesting you bring up this uh, incident re- response. I was looking back at some documents. I think 2016, the Homeland Security Department, in, in response to the uh, Presidential Policy Directive 41, put out a national cyber incident response plan. So here we are, 2019. Yeah. It's, it's three years old. And boy, has cyber changed yeah. a lot in those three years. It's almost like, and, and we always talk about this, oh, it's got to be a living document. We've got to be a, you know, dynamically updated as things change. But that's right. that's difficult from your perspective, and and you know as you work with your partners at the National Security Institute, does that come up that that idea of of we've got to do a better job, and how can we do a better job to create that dynamic effort? I mean, we know there's a lot of yeah. exercises. DoD, the intelligence community, does do exercises yep. in responding to cyber incidents, but you still need a plan. No, that's exactly right. And, and Jason, one of the things you you made a really important point about, I think, is this question of incident response. We've spent a lot of time creating these plans, and the one you point out there, yes, it's old and needs to be updated. Um, but we spent so much time thinking about incident response that we don't, and we don't spend enough time thinking about how do we get ahead of the incident. I mean, by the time you're responding to an incident, it's almost too late. The data's been stolen, the data's been manipulated, systems have been down. And yes, it's really important to be ready for that and be able to get back up to speed and find the bad guy and take them out of your system and get your systems back up and running. But boy, shouldn't we be spending a lot of time thinking about hey, how do we stop the threat before it hits us, right? Shouldn't we share information before that happens so that we can defend systems better before the attack happens? And if and when we do have to respond, shouldn't we already have in place sort of a deterrent system so that people know if you punch me in the face in cyberspace, I'm going to punch you back in the following three ways, right? Part of the reason why today you don't see deterrence work in cyberspace is not because, as some have suggested, oh, deterrence just doesn't work in cyber. That's totally false. Deterrence can and does work in cyber. The problem is we just don't deter in the traditional ways. Nobody knows what our capabilities are. Nobody knows what our red lines are. And they, they think that if our red lines are crossed, because they have been crossed at times, right, to the extent we know what they are, we're not going to do anything about it. So we've got to be willing. If we want to deter bad acts, we've got to be willing to say to people, hey, if you do X, I'm going to do Y. And by the way, that Y doesn't have to be in cyberspace. That's another sort of weird thing that we think about cyberspace. Said, oh, if you hit me in cyber – I gotta punch you back in that way. Not true at all. And so we gotta get rid of some of those, get rid of some of those old shibboleths, and we gotta be willing to really say to the enemy, "Hey, look. A, I'm gonna deter you. B, if you hit me, I'm gonna hit you back. And C, right? I am going to get ahead of this threat by collecting intelligence, by empowering my private sector, and really being prepared to respond if and when the day that, that day comes." My guest is Jamil Jaffer, the Vice President for Strategy and Partnership at IronNet Cybersecurity and the Founder and Executive Director of the National Security Institute at the George Mason University Law School. Jamil, during the conversation, you brought up offensive cyber capabilities several times, and and one of the things that NATO has not addressed publicly, at least, is that idea of offensive cyber capabilities or at least offensive operations. We've only seen the Defense Department in the last, I would say, two or three years really start to address offensive cyber operations, or at least acknowledge that they will do it. Give me a sense of where you see the idea of offensive operations kind of morphing, evolving over the next, you know, year, two years, five years. Well, it's amazing, you know, that, that our intelligence community and and and, uh, and military community have had a hard time talking about offensive operations in cyber because we see and we know through the public reporting that every day, you know, or every week, every month, our enemies are using offensive cyber activities against us. Now, more often than not, right, those are in the intelligence space and they're using it to collect data. That's not unusual. We've all, we have all, all these nations have done that for a long time. But where it's become really problematic is we've seen a rise in our opponents, our enemies in, in the international space using 
very destructive attacks, deleting data, manipulating data, essentially, you know, detonating logic bombs in, in inside American private companies and, and our and the companies and, and governments of our allies. And yet we have not effectively responded. And part of the reason why I think we haven't effectively responded is some people fear we live in a glass house. And so we rely on, on you know, our cyber capabilities to, as a nation uh, for our economy and the like, and that's a problem. Uh, sometimes I think we think that, well, if we respond and they respond, we'll get into this escalatory situation and, you know, it'll become a, a parade of horribles, right? And all those things are, are certainly true and they're things to worry about. But at the end of the day, if you're going to prevent people from hitting you in cyberspace, you've got to be willing to say, hey, not only am I willing to respond in cyberspace or through other means outside of cyberspace, but I have the capability to do so. And here are some of the tools. It doesn't mean you have to reveal every intelligence capability or every weapon, but you have to be willing to say, I have a capability and I will use it. And then when that person does that thing to you, you said, don't do to me, you've got to respond. Because if you lose your credibility in that space, then you might as well, you might as well have lost all your deterrence ability. It's interesting you bring up this idea of destructive data. The first time I heard about that as a, an attack uh, was from your colleague, uh, retired General Keith Alexander, who was part of IronNet. And I remember when he was uh, the head of NSA and head of uh, the initial head of U.S. Cyber Command, he really talked very openly about this. That is the next wave of concern. Do you think that is what will require the government and or industry to take up these offensive measures? Or what will it take for the government to really start to say, we're going to be more aggressive or more open with our offensive capabilities, and then hopefully that will add to the deterrence discussion? The thing is, uh, you know, I wish I could say, yeah, it'll just take that and then we'll do it. The problem is it's happened, right? People forget that when the Sony hack happened, you know, everyone thinks about Sony and they say, oh, well, you know, there we had this, uh, all these movies were released and all these emails came out and that was really bad for Sony. People forget that at the Sony Pictures Corporation, the old Columbia Pictures out in, out in Culver City, California, right where I, used to, where I grew up, there was actually data deleted. Computers were bricked, made inoperable at Sony Pictures. Right? The same was true uh, back, in, back, in the, back in the early you know, 2014, 2015 timeframe at the Las Vegas Sands Corporation here in the United States. Um, and it's not like it's only happening here in the U.S. It happened um, overseas at Saudi Aramco and Qatari Razgas. And these go back years. I'm not even talking about more recent attacks. You look at, you look at what happened with NotPetya just a year and a half ago, right, by the Russians, or almost two years ago now at the end, at the end of this month. Um, that, that attack resulted in domain controllers going down around the world for companies like Maersk, the international shipper, right? And as a result, they were unable to run certain port operations at a range of their ports around the globe, causing very real economic damage to their operations and delays in their shipping. And, you know, you can imagine one in which that becomes very real very quickly um, if we're talking about humanitarian supplies or food or the like. And so, you know, these things are happening, and yet today we're still very reticent to talk about our capabilities. Now, interestingly, I do think you've seen a change in pace in just the last six to eight, nine months. Um, you saw Congress in, 29, in, in, in 2018, late 2018, pass legislation essentially giving the authorization to DOD to use cyber military capabilities to respond to Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea if they engage in a certain set of activities. So they've given sort of a preview of what they might do. Um, and we, we hear that maybe DOD and Cyber Command are getting a little more aggressive under this administration. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, but I think we've got to be willing to talk about that, too. If we're going to do it, you've got to be seen to do it. Deterrence only works when the world sees that, A, 
I hit you, you got hit, you punched back, and everyone saw you punch back, and that way they know that they shouldn't they shouldn't try to do it to you either. If you do it quietly and covertly, it's not nearly as effective when it comes to deterrence. You you brought up a lot of the big attacks like Saudi Aramco, but you didn't bring up Stuxnet, and Stuxnet was an interesting attack. And I don't want to get into all the the nitty gritty, but that was in many ways an example of the U.S. being open about punching back. Now it got leaked out through the newspaper, and it came out probably not the way the the government wanted to. But would you agree that that type of attack, that that type of use of offensive cyber weapons, is the type of thing that the NATO and, and the government and, and you know the U.S. government should work together on to at least show the capabilities of. I mean, like like exploding a nuclear weapon in the 50s in the in the desert. Hey, look what we can do. Okay, now you want to mess with us? You just saw the results. I mean, is, is, should they have some sort of cyber offensive exercise in a sense? Well, yeah, you know, putting to one side Stuxnet and who did that and what it was and uh, any of that stuff. Just talking generally about um, if you have an offensive capability. Does it make sense to show it off and say to the world, hey, if you do something, I can use this? And I think the answer is obviously yes. And again, I don't think you need to reveal the most, your best capability, right? Um, but you certainly need to say, hey, look, if you punch me, I will punch you back. And I've got F-16s, I've got F-22s, I've got B-52s, I've got B-2, B-2 bombers, and I've got this level of cyber things. And it, depending on what you do to me, I may use an F-16, you know, and a B2, uh, you know, B2 bomber, I may use a cyber capability, right? So don't do these things unless you want to face that. And then, and I can't emphasize this enough, when you make that sort of assertion, you've got to be willing to back it up. And all too often in, in recent years, um, and it's been true across multiple parties, so it's not a partisan thing, right? Um, you know, we haven't, we've been willing to talk a tough game, but haven't really been willing to back it up. And if you're not willing to back it up, people will eventually get the sense that you're not really credible. And then the whole deterrence theory, no matter how much you talk about your offensive capabilities, whether in cyberspace or otherwise, it just won't be as effective. Jamil, let me take us back to the beginning of the conversation around NATO and, and the work of, of sharing cyber threat information. Do you get a sense of how DOD, how NATO are working together to, uh, across this entire cyber intelligence issue around this idea of uh, offensive, cyber, offensive cyber operations? Historically, um, you know, the alliance has been very strong when it comes to uh, defending uh, all of the nations in the alliance, uh, particularly in the European theater. Um, you know, and I think the same is true in cyberspace. I think that, that we've increasingly been talking about that and are more and more willing to do that. I think where it gets a little challenging is there are debates as between the European nations and the United States about um, what kind of surveillance we engage in, for what purposes, as against whom. But we've always had a strong intelligence sharing relationship. And, we, and given our strong military-to-military -military relationships, our strong intelligence-sharing relationships, I think we can count on the fact that the cyber work will be good together, too. I mean, frankly, the threats we face are very common, right? The North Korean threat, the Russian threat, the Chinese threat are just as pressing with our NATO allies as they are with us. So I see a lot of opportunity for collaboration and work together. Jamil, this has been a fascinating conversation. We're just out of time. Before I let you go, can you give me a sense of – if you would make one recommendation or two recommendations to your, your friends at NATO, your friends at DOD around cybersecurity, what would they be? I think the most concrete thing I could say is if you're going to really, truly defend the nation, you've got to be willing to give the people who are on the front line, that is to say your companies, your industry, and your allies across the Atlantic, the information that you have about the threats. So let them see what you're seeing and also collect against the threat that they're seeing and share with them the information they can use to defend themselves. Because if you're not going to defend them, you the government or you the allies, 
You've got to empower that collective defense on the other side, and that only comes through very real, very specific, detailed information sharing in real time at machine speed. If you don't do that, you know, it's just not going to work effectively against the kind of speed and nature of the attackers that are coming against us today. And so you got to do that, and you got to do it not in, in a year from now, not in two years from now. you got to do it tomorrow, and you got to do it right away. Obviously, there's the immediate need to deal with cybersecurity, and I think the, the key takeaway for me from our conversation, among other things, is real-time and collective defense. So, so uh, Jamil Jaffer, thank you so much for taking the time. You are the Vice President for Strategy and Partnership at IronNet Cybersecurity and the Founder and Executive Director for the National Security Institute at the George Mason University Hanson Scalia Law School. Jamil, thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. really appreciate it. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 